The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. There's a couple chapters on mindfulness of the mind if you want to get a hold of it. Inside of Utejaniya, this Burmese teacher says, One thing you need to remember and understand is that you cannot leave the mind alone. It needs to be watched over constantly. If you do not look after your garden, it will overgrow with weeds. If you do not watch your mind, defilements will grow and multiply. The mind does not belong to you, but you are responsible for it. And this is the interesting thing about not just our mind, actually, but I think in a bigger sense, it's, it's also about our situation as people and culture and sharing our culture, cultural mind together. It's like we can misunderstand our own mind and, and we can misunderstand our culture in both ways. We can uh, take it really personal, our mind or what's going on around us. And that's not quite right. Like, so our action, our you know, incentive or desire to fix the mind, but it's based on wrong understanding, like that the mind is me. Or we can see, you know, the world that we're in the middle of and the craziness of it and say, it's not my responsibility, the world's just crazy. And I'm just going to be in my little place and, you know, good luck to you, but... Or same thing with our mind. You know, my mind's just out of control, but, you know, I didn't make it this way. So there's this very interesting, I think somewhat paradoxical situation that we find ourselves in, and I think it has to do with our whole practice, which is as we pay more attention, we're more awake, more mindful, we come to understand two things. One gradually we come to understand that everything's impersonal it just not it, that's not a theoretical proposition we just notice like the dynamic in our relationships with our parents with our siblings with our spouses our partners with our larger community the dance we're doing around politics these days in america we just see how lawful and impersonal it all is. And we're completely responsible for engaging it. Right? Just because it's impersonal right, doesn't get, let anybody off the hook. And it's the same thing with our mind. As we study our mind more and more, we recognize the impersonal patterns, the depressive patterns, the manic patterns, the you know, all the different variety of patterns that we have, being really kindly and loving and being really irritable and not wanting to be around anybody and everything in between. So on the one hand, we see the imperfections of the mind, but we're responsible to engage it and to learn how to be skillful with it, even though it's not personal. Because, you know, ignoring it because it's not personal would be personalizing it. Like, 
Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, oh, I don't have to do anything because it's not personal. Well, that would come from a personal point of view. So, generally speaking, when in doubt, you know, engage. Because if nothing else, we'll learn faster than getting uh, caught in the wrong view that there's something called disengagement or non-involvement. Like, what would that be as long as we're alive? You know, even if you did the sort of proverbial hermit thing, you know, and found a cave, I mean, that's just as much a doing and engagement as running for president or whatever else you might do with your life. There's no, being alive is an engagement. So it's just a question of what kind of engagement and what it sets in motion. So when we have a mind, and then in a bigger way, we have a life, right, together. We have this life together, this world together that we're co-creating and, you know, and experiencing. It's like the, there is no alternative to engagement. So the question is, engagement with awareness allows for the possibility of skill to arise. Constructing the idea of disengagement or I'm not responsible, that's just an idea because we don't like that feeling of feeling responsible. So there's this uh, basic fluency of the mind, learning about the mind, being mindful of the mind, and it's really the path to freedom. Like suffering can only arise in the not understanding of the mind. There's no other way to suffer. And another way of saying that is suffering, stress, can't be sustained with understanding. You can, you can experiment with that. And so that means if you're aware, you feel pretty present, and you're suffering, then quite naturally the question should arise, well, what's not being seen? What's here but not yet fully seen, fully accepted? Maybe the mind's not stable enough to, it's too subtle for the stability of the mind. Because otherwise what will happen is the mind will relate to the stress, the suffering with wrong view, that it's happening to me, that it's about me, and I can't get rid of it. As opposed to this experience, this appearance of suffering is just the absence of not seeing what it is. It's what this looks like when it's not seen clearly, when it's not understood deeply. Like, um, I use that simile sometimes of looking in the back, looking out the back screen door. And you just have a bad habit of, of the mind uh, seeing fixed, fixated on the screen itself. It's just a habit. Because, you know, maybe we, we learned when we were young that, you know, screens are scary or screens are good. But we immediately see the screen 
And then once we start seeing it, it's hard to see anything but the screen. And, you know, we could have the most charismatic people, most convincing people tell us that there's this backyard right there, but we look and all we see is the screen. What do you mean backyard? (laughs) You know, it's just a bunch of hogwash. You know, you must be some, you know, idealistic, religious kind of person who's just dreaming this thing up. It's all magical thinking. There's no backyard. There's just the screen, just like I've always seen, the screen. But if we can get a little dent, you know, in terms of knowing the mind, that there's something to see here, right? There's something beyond what the mind knows. And that's really the work. It's like why I didn't tonight, not that, I mean, there's any way, any number of ways to sort of do this investigation of the mind, but I didn't really offer any anchor for the attention. And just the sense that whether it, it's always mind, you know, the mind is always being known, the qualities of the mind, they're always being known. And it's good to feel a little off balance because it's, it will give us a sense that we're in new territory and we might try some things that are different as opposed to just doing the same old thing and seeing the screen and seeing the screen and seeing the screen. So in terms of the basic fluency that we're developing with our awareness practice, you know, the first is just to let in, even if it's just on initially on an intellectual level, that there is a mind. You know, there is a mind here. We don't know what it is, but we create a category, you know, we have a word, mind, and we know it's not like hardness or warmth or smoothness, it's not these, you know, it's not the sound itself or the visual experience itself. And that it sort of makes us interested. And the other sort of useful thing about that basic fluency is that um, the this is like the second, you know, sort of the second lesson, you know, the first lesson that we have to let in because nothing comes beyond this. If we if we don't have a sense, if we're not willing to suspend disbelief that there is a mind, we're not going to learn anything about the mind. So there's a mind, and the experience of pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality, that's all mind. Right? So, uh, not liking something or liking something or not caring because it's neutral, that's all mind. Whatever that is, it's mind. So, happiness and suffering on that real simplistic, gross level like having what I want or not having what I or having what I don't want. We're talking about an expression of the mind there. And the more we understand the mind, the more we're sort of open to there's a mind, that there's a mind, then there's a sense of of uh 
participating skillfully, like whatever this is, this experience of mind, there seems to be, because I know that there's pleasant and unpleasant, there seems to be ways of participating or whatever word we'd want to use. There's ways of being skillful and unskillful, right? Because we end up in chronically unpleasant states or we end up in chronically pleasant states. And it's not, we have a sense just from observing, paying attention that it's not random. Like that somehow ending up in really heavy, difficult, tight states or ending up in light, loving, pleasant states, that it, that somehow it matters how I participate or how the mind, what I'm doing. So the experience of suffering is a, like the, the um, freedom from suffering that the path leads to is the freedom from mental suffering. So this is the, you know, the whole point of opening to the fact, to the possibility there's a mind and sometimes it's pleasant, the quality of the mind is pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. And there is this present moment participation in what we call the mind. And like for example, we can be mindful of the mind we can be interested in the mind, or there's a lot of times we're not interested in the mind, we're completely oblivious that there's a mind. We're so absorbed in some activity that there's not this reflective sense that there's a mind here that's either pleasant or unpleasant. Happy, not happy, light or heavy. So we, at some point, we're born into, we, we start to understand, you know, from paying attention, like what the difference between being skillful and unskillful is. It's like a birth into a, being a moral being, sometimes people call it, but not moral, morals, ethics imposed from the outside, but like that there is actually a skillful way and an unskillful way, you know, positive and negative. (coughs) So last week I talked about the three stages and this is that second stage where we're beginning to have some confidence that it really matters and that it always matters. So this is why we sometimes gets called like the, the birth of ethics or the birth of morals. It's like it matters how we're participating, how we're showing up in the world. We're always setting something in motion, karma, right? And there are consequences to how we're showing up. So we get on this personal kick to learn how to show up, learn how to participate skillfully in the mind, in the unfolding of the mind. One mind followed by another mind, each mind is conditioning the next mind. But of course it's happening at such a rapid pace that we don't, it's not easy at least to notice the one mind followed by the next. 
sometimes you can get that sense because there's so much, like because of this mind conditioning the next mind, the next moment of mind, we, the mind, the habit of the mind is to impute it's the same mind. But you can begin to notice that it's not, and sometimes it changes very quickly, but we tend not to want to notice that. It's, you know, it sort of throws us, like how could that happen? Another part of the skill is just understanding the energy level of the mind and how fluid that is. It's like what happens when we get interested in sleepiness, actually interested in sleepiness, or what happens when we get interested in restlessness. What, what brings the mind into balance? It's like uh, it's so interesting that even when there's not a lot of greed, anger, and delusion, you know, the mind feels relatively peaceful, but it, it doesn't settle. So why isn't it settling? Why isn't it becoming stable and clearer and brighter? How's the energy leaking? Whoops. You know, where, where, where is the dissipation? How is that dissipation of energy happening in the mind? Where's the leakage? To get interested in that. Uh, and this is especially, you know, once you've experienced uh, enough times the mind being really stable and bright, so that what we might initially think would be not possible where there's a lot of tranquility and the mind is perfectly clear and bright at the same time. Right? And, and part of that, when we use that word bright or wieldy, uh, the idea is that the mind is happy to investigate or happy to see things as they are. It's not like our normal idea of investigation. It's just... It's an effortless kind of discernment. It's not an effortful, I gotta figure this out kind of thing. So then when it's not that way and we know it's possible to be that way, then then it's just, there's that natural curiosity. Well, where's the leakage? Why, what is in the way of the mind stabilizing and the energy building? You know, and a lot of it has to do, this is when there aren't grosser levels of greed and aversion, you know, is around some mistaken idea of needing to do something, including often uh, needing to do the meditation or needing to fix something in order to do the meditation. It's like uh, busy busyness. Or believing taking personally uh, the heaviness of the mind. Right? It really matters what we pay attention to. It's like uh, if there's a lot of bubbly energy, if we misinterpret it, it might feel like there's a lot to do. You know, sometimes when we, we have that bubbly energy that let's just call it uh, a little anxiety, Right? Well, we'll assume that there's something to do because the heart 
is anxious. You know, the quality of the mind, heart is anxious. So I wouldn't be anxious if there isn't a lot to do. So we'll think of things we might need to do. And then by thinking of them, of course, that just sets in motion that feedback loop of them being anxious and then thinking of the things and being back and forth like that. And it's the same with sleepiness. You know, if we misperceive the heaviness of mind, taking it personally as if somebody has had a hard day or somebody really needs to rest. There's basically two ways to do One is just to let the mind, without personalizing it, just let that feeling of heaviness move. Don't resist it. But it's when we tell, basically tell us so ourselves a story that it becomes a problem. You know, that we become that heaviness, that sleepiness, that contracted state. So there's so much to learn about just uh, what we do when the mind's heavy. Instead of immediately, which is our habit, like, oh God, I gotta deal with restlessness. You know, I got that wormy feeling that wiry feeling, or I got to deal with sleepiness. To just like remember that we're participating and that, and this is what's so useful about that first stage about knowing that there is a mind. Even if, I, again, even if it's just on an intellectual level, like the Buddha says, that often quoted passage, the mind is luminous. Luminous practitioners is this mind, but it is disturbed by the adventitious defilements, obscurations. Right? Something, something dances like the screen. And the habit of the mind is to take it personally. But the mind itself, right? This like holding this as an idea at least, so that you'll look in a particular way that the mind has this nature to be stable, this nature to be bright, this nature to be clear, this nature to be peaceful, to be light and free. Because, and again, you know, a lot of times in Buddhism, in the practices from the Buddha, we pick up a view in order to contrast wrong view. Right, so thinking my mind is heavy, or thinking my, you know, thinking I, I've got these problems, then we can pick up this other view, right, to challenge. Well, maybe that's not actually true. In a fixed way that I might, the mind might be in the habit of thinking it's true. So this is really important, you know, and luckily we have some time in this course. It's 11 weeks. This is week four. But to really uh, think of yourself as striking out into this great exploration, like a, a new land, a new place, a place ha that has never been explored before. And uh, the real um, challenge of this exploration is to 
refrain from looking at the mind in all the ways you've looked at the mind before. To really have a fresh attitude. And so this is important, especially for some of you who've been meditating for a while, then that means it's your meditation is a habit. So you sit down. So you might, like for this practice, you might want to sit in a different place. You might want to sit with your eyes open, if your eyes are usually closed. And don't use your typical meditation object, or don't use it for the whole time. And remember the mind, whatever the mind is, it's here. And then keep your mind open to the possibility that one, it's a really worthwhile investigation. You know, like we should be actually curious about the nature of the mind. And two, it might be more beautiful or amazing or like out of the box. Like we might not know like uh, what to expect. Because if all we're doing is looking for what we expect, it really limits. So a sense of humility or a sense of awe, a kind of beginner's mind and looking at the mind. And we have this one barometer, you know, which is like how it feels. And not to judge that, like if we get in a really hellish state and things feel all entangled and now we're hitting ourselves for being a failure at mindfulness of the mind and I don't know what I'm doing and that doubt feels really oppressive, even suffocating sometimes and like, oh, and I've never been good at anything. Right? So then just keeping that thread alive, like, well, this is interesting. So this is a really, you know, as a mind goes, this is a really contracted, unpleasant state. So that's kind of interesting how I ended up here. You know, because then you can, you know, this is the great thing. We have this capacity to reflect, well, how did this happen? We have memory. We can go, well... What did I do? What, what was done? How was I related? How was the mind relating to the mind? What presumptions, what views were present? What were the effects? We can kind of like, don't do that. Okay, <laughs> I've learned something. Don't do that. Because when you do that, you get into this hellish, suffocated state of thinking, I can't do this. Right? Okay, and then you start something else. Like there's a mind. Because we have this barometer where things are getting entangled or tight or heavy or peaceful or stable, I think I, I don't know if I mentioned it in this course, but you know, a lot of us, you know, in different places at least. You know, some of you maybe with food and cooking and some of you with electronic devices and some of you with kids just have, over the years, gained a lot of confidence. And so if a problem arises, like in preparing some food, you have a lot of confidence that you can figure it out. You know, you just try different things, so a little bit more salt in or do this or do that. And you figure it out. Or taking care of a problem with a kid or 
whatever, you know, figuring out how to use a new electronic device. It's like, because you come at it with the assumption that it makes sense, you know. They want to build something. <laughs> you know, these things, kids, electronic devices, whatever it might be, even like your own health. Like, there's some sense to like how to bring the body, the health of the body back into balance. Like what doesn't work and what does work. And we want to have that same attitude about the mind. It's like it's logical or it's rational how it works. So we just need to keep probing and trying and like take good field notes, whether you actually do it or just, you know, making a note of what works and what doesn't work. I mean, imagine if we have been had been that systematic. All the times we ended up in happy states, really wholesome, happy states, and all the times we ended up in really hellish states, and we had really good notes, and we kind of analyzed the notes, we'd be pretty sophisticated uh, in terms of taking care of the mind and really setting it free, letting it express its goodness and its natural boundless, uh, unoppressed nature. So we'll have our small groups in a few minutes. And, uh, you know, there's many things you could share in the small groups. Some of the thoughts I have that might be interesting are somewhere here. Yeah, so um, understanding there is a mind. So the mind in and of itself, this is this first stage of mindfulness of mind. Seeing the mind in and of itself. It might be seeing some particular quality like anger in and of itself or joy in and of itself. But that would be a nice thing to share in the small group. Just seeing the mind and the, or the coloring of the mind not in terms of a person, a me, but just as a quality or as a, like I kind of like thinking of it as a mind that only lasts for a moment before there's another mind. But in this moment, knowing the mind, it was like this. You know, the anger in the mind was like this. And like I mentioned, it's always a little surprising when we have these insights and we realize, oh, it's just anger or it's just judging or it's just peace or this is just equanimity. The first time we see it in and of itself, not in terms of, I'm really equanimous now, but we realize it's just equanimity in the mind. It's just that quality being known. So that's something you could share where you had a moment of just seeing the mind in and of itself. Or that second stage, there's another thing you might share in your small group of, of learn, you know, like a discovery of what's skillful or what's unskillful. So this is more connecting the dots where you've seen something unfold and the mind understood why it's unfolding this way, why all of that weight is being released and now the heart-mind is being experienced as something very light and free or how the mind got really entangled. And so interesting to talk about with our friends who understand this, like, you know, how we, how we got to hell. 
It's like these are one of the nicest moments with a friend is when we can laugh together about how we end up in hell. How the mind saw it this, reacted in this way, set this emotion, and it really hurt. And I was really caught. But now I realize it was just hell being known. Right? In the moment, it was hell. But now I can talk about it because I understand how that happened. And the same with really beautiful. We're not all idealistic. You know, I had this mystical experience. It was just a really beautiful moment being known. And we understood why, we understand why it happened. Because it was lawful. And it could happen again if the same conditions, same supporting conditions are there. We don't personalize those beautiful so-called mystical or insight experiences. They're just what they are, something being known. And we understand the lawfulness of that skillful unfolding or the lawfulness of that unskillful unfolding. So those are two things you might share. You could talk about uh, balancing energy by being aware of too much energy, restlessness, scatteredness, distractedness, too little energy, being sleepy, dull, in a contracted state, and how you've learned to be skillful. Like, how do you participate when it's like that in a way that brings the mind, helps the mind come into balance? Or not? And then the last thing, so the fourth thing that you might share in your small groups is this mirror-like quality of the mind. And uh, in the chapter that I recommended you read from um, Venerable Analeo, he has a paragraph just about that mirror-like quality of the mind that I'll just read here. It's on the second page of that chapter. Nope. It's on the, like the fourth page of it. Such mindful observation without involvement is illustrated in a simile in the discourses in which the Buddha compares awareness of one's states of mind to the use of a mirror to see one's reflection. Just as a mirror simply reflects whatever is presented to it, meditators should try to maintain bare awareness of the present condition of their mind without allowing reactions to arise. See, this is the ideal, and it really points to the third stage of our mindfulness, right? First is just to see the mind in and of itself or the qualities of mind in and of themselves, understand how to set emotion release or set emotion suffering, so what's skillful and unskillful. And the third is more in the direction of this mirror-like quality of the mind so that the mindfulness is maintained just so that this is being known. So the response, like the skillful response to set release in motion arises from that clear mirror-like activity. We don't have to be the person who is skillful. We're just, in a sense, aware, just awareness. And the response comes out of that clarity, that awareness. We don't have to initiate the intervention. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, 
www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.